Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, sponsored by First National. I am Adam Pawatic. My co-host is Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Sean Hildebrand, and today we're going to discuss residential development in the GTA. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you. Thanks welcome, for having welcome me. back to the show. Yeah. yeah another re- another repeat guest. The last time we had you on, I was still skeptical that whether it was a supplier demand issue going on in the in the Canadian or is particularly in the Toronto development market. I think I made the comment to you, you know, but if you drive in on the gardener, you look across and you see all of these cranes and is, is there really enough people that want to live in these units that are being built and are we going to see a big crash in the prices? And there was still that kind of narr- narrative going on in, in, in the media and I think amongst us in the real estate industry. And you were saying absolutely not. No, 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 guys, like you got us all wrong. There's so much demand. There's not nearly enough supply. Like this is just prices are going to continue to go up. And I was a little bit, I was a bit skeptical at the time. And this was probably two and a half years ago now, give or take. And now clearly we all are on the same page. Like there's a severe supply issue going on in the GTA uh, and for the foreseeable future. Maybe let's just start with, you know, what you've seen most recently in your research and, and, uh, are we getting to a better place in the supply-demand equilibrium? Yeah, well, it was interesting because um, in 2017, we had a record number of new projects open for pre-construction sales. Right, There was over 30,000 units that came into the market in a single year. What we found was that almost all of those units were absorbed pretty much within the 12-month period. And it led to a, a record volume of condo sales. We had never sold 35,000 units before. Um, the best year that we had was the year before, which was about 25,000 sales. Which is an increase of so 30% or 30%, so. yeah. So it showed just how insatiable demand for high-rise condominiums were. Now, I'll say that you know I, I got a little nervous when we were tabulating the numbers. And I thought, well, if we're, if we're bringing in 35,000 units a year... It's going to lead to some problems at some point, some capacity issues. And we're starting to already see that sort of bear fruit through higher construction costs, projects taking longer to receive approvals and actually begin construction. And you're starting to get supply bottlenecks as a result. So I I think the fact that the market started to slow down a bit in early 2018 was a good thing. Partly policy-induced, right? Uh, The new construction market tends to take a cue from what's happening in the broader resale market. And we saw two important policy interventions during 2017. Obviously, the first being the uh, the fair housing plan about a year ago. So that introduced a foreign buyer's tax and then uh, new rent control regulations for, for new construction units. And then at the beginning of the year, obviously, the OSVB 20 rules came in, so making it much harder for first-time buyers in particular to get into the marketplace and qualify. So activity slowed down, right? Resale demand moderated. But what was interesting was that whereas in the detached market, prices almost fully corrected, right? You saw a huge 30% run up between, let's say, December 2016 and April Mm -hmm. of 2017. And then prices have basically come back down to where they were, uh, even lower than this time last year. But in the condo market, prices also experienced that very rapid run up, but they've sort of just hung there. They, they haven't corrected at all. And in fact, the April numbers showed that prices were still up 3% on a year-over-year basis, mm. which was extremely remarkable. I was actually expecting it to be slightly negative. Right. So the fact that demand has held up that much better for the condo market, I think, shows just how resilient that segment of the market has become. 
and how big of a chunk that portion of the market is because of how stretched affordability in general has become. When I look at certain metrics in the condo market, like the ratio of detached homes to condos that are being sold, the proportion of activity going into the condo market is at an all-time high right now. And I don't think you can blame speculative buying and foreign buying for driving that activity. I think it really is a function of buyers looking for what's priced at the average or slightly below the average. And if you're looking to purchase a home in the city of Toronto, you're almost exclusively looking at the condo market Mm -hmm. at this point. The average price of a condo is $585,000 in the GTA. It's $600,000 in the city of Toronto. As a first-time buyer, that's pretty much your entry point. And uh, a lot of move-up buying is happening within the condo market as well. You're starting to see more downsizing occur, which is a good thing because it's starting to open up some single-family home supply. But yeah, I mean, on a month-to-month basis, the market has showed stability. So, you know, after a big run-up like we saw in 2017, it was, uh, you know, it's concerning because you don't quite know what's going to happen next, right? It's going to impact psychology, certainly. And a market like the condo uh, sector, which is heavily investment-driven, the financials start to make less sense as well, right? If you're buying at $1,000 a square foot, you're going to require that much more in rent growth in order Mm -hmm. for the the unit to carry when when it's coming to completion. So uh, the fact that things started to level off, I'd say the projects that are coming into the market now are pretty much priced at what they would have launched at in the fall of last year, which is great. We're starting to see some stability. It's encouraging because there's still basically no supply, right? You have a lot of upward pricing pressure in the marketplace, but there's been some discipline, I think, on the part of both investors and developers when it comes to pricing new projects so far this year. You mentioned the price run for investors being problematic if they need rent to carry. I'm sure you've got this in your data. The average rental price of a condo has also had a significant run up in the last year or so to compensate. Have you looked at both of them in comparison in terms of a return basis? You know, what you'd have been looking at, you know, a year ago, 18 months ago versus now? It is one outpacing the other to, in some respect or another. Well, if you look at the last um, three years, condo prices have risen by 50%, mm-hmm. right? Rents have risen by about half that amount. So they've risen quite strongly as well, about 25% in three years. Annualized rate in the first quarter of 2018 was about 10%. But it's, it's quite abnormal for rents to grow by that amount for an extended period of time. Because you know with prices, you have the ability to stretch out amortizations and you have low interest rates and you have a bunch of other things that can kind of moderate the affordability. But with rents, it's rents against income, right? If yeah. rents are growing by 25 or 30%, you have to have that sort of a lift in, in incomes as well. And you know the GTA economy is the strongest in the country. It's growing very quickly and incomes are growing. We're seeing an influx of, of new migrants that are skilled and, and they have higher income levels. But you know, it's not growing that quickly. It's not growing that quickly. And, um, and I think affordability is, is really starting to get, become stretched across the board. And uh, part of the reason is um, we just haven't been delivering enough supply within the rental market. The biggest source of new supply has come from the condo sector. And remarkably, we've seen a slowdown in condo completions. So even though we're building a record number of units, those deliveries have actually slowed to a five-year low. It, I know this is a hard number to, to grasp, but the proportion of buyers of the condo market that are intending it as an investment rather than as an end user. Has that changed, right? And I don't, I think that's a tough piece of information to to really capture, to see who's really, you know, are they buying it for themselves to live in or are they buying for, to to use as an investment for rents? And has that changed over time because they can't get the rents they need to cover the carry costs? 
Uh, it has changed, but not in the direction that you would have thought. Really? Um, so one of the metrics that we like to look at to gauge investor activity in the market is the volume of units that are being sold right at opening, right? When a developer comes into the marketplace, they're usually targeting select brokers that are known to drive high volume of business from investor clients. So if you have a high percentage of units that are being sold right at launch, it usually indicates a high percentage of pre-sale investors. By pre-sale investors, you mean individuals that are intending to, to rent out that unit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So last year we had, as I mentioned, 35,000 pre-construction sales. Of those units that came into the market as a new launch, about 85% of them were pre-sold right at opening. So that would tell you that there could be about an 80% investor share last year. If you looked at those percentages historically, they averaged about 50 to 60%. So not only did we pre-sell a record number of units, but we pre-sold them to individuals that don't plan on living on them, right? They're going to add them into the rental market, or if they can't, they're going to, to flip them. They're going to sell them. So we've seen an increasing share of, of investors in the market. And in some cases, it'll be difficult for them to cash flow these units. And in fact, the units that came to completion in 2017, we looked at their cash flow position. So we took the rents from all of the units that finished uh, last year within the newly completed buildings. And we combined the data on an individual record basis with mortgage information that came directly from Terranet. So we knew specifically what the individual purchasers paid for their units. We knew what their mortgage costs were. We knew what their maintenance fees were. And what we found was that about 56% of them were cash flow positive, wow. but 44% were cash flow negative. Um, That's a direct result of the down payment that they're using to, to buy these units? Yeah, so most will put down 20%. They'll put down the minimum. Okay. But uh, even within those that are cash flow negative, a certain percentage were more than $1,000 a month cash flow negative. About 30% of those that were cash so flow negative. So they're paying $12,000 a year just to, to own that unit and rent it out. Yeah, and I think there's different reasons why an investor would carry a, a unit that doesn't cash flow by that amount. But what it comes down to is that they have strong expectations for capital appreciation, right? If the value of the unit increases by $20,000 in a year and they're outlaying 12000 then they're still kind of ahead, right? And then you have, uh, obviously, inherently within that payment, you have mortgage principal pay down and uh, basically just a perception that condos are a great investment. They're a stable investment. They provide income and the vacancy rates are virtually zero. But kind of complicating all of these matters now is rent control, right? You can, you can lease up a unit and it's going to be cash flow negative. In the past, you could increase the rents in time now you have to wait for the tenant to obviously turn over. And what we've noticed in the market is that after rent control was enacted, the tenants aren't moving as much as, as they used to, right? The average length of tenure for a, even just a condo rental tenant has stretched out significantly within the past year. Which makes perfect sense. It makes sense. With the market that's inflating as quickly as it is and you're controlled within your existing uh, rent, why would you move, right? Yeah. And it's that much more difficult to qualify for an ownership unit Especially um, with rents increasing at the rate they are, you're looking around, you saying, well, if I move, I'm now paying an extra 200 bucks a month. At least. Even if I move to the unit adjacent to me, right? So mm -hmm. It's one of those unintended consequences, I think, of rent control is that you don't see as much mobility in the marketplace. What's encouraging, though, is that we're still seeing some applications come in for purpose-built rental development. It's slowed a bit. When we looked at the 12 months prior to rent control, the quantity of units that were coming in as development applications dedicated for purpose-built was higher than what it was in the 12 months that followed, for sure. Still a lot of interest, a little bit more hesitation, I'd say, in the city of Toronto recently, but a lot of applications coming in within the suburban markets of the GTA, which is quite interesting. 
And that may be partly due to land costs just being, it makes performers work a little better in those kinds of projects. Yeah, and, and with the growth in rents that have occurred, not only within the city of Toronto, but you know, within markets like Mississauga and, and, and other portions of the 905 region, the numbers start to make sense as well, right? That you're getting close to $3 a square foot in some of these smaller markets. In the city of Toronto, within a new build, you're pretty much close to $4 a square foot at this point. Hmm. You mentioned um, the investor expectations when when buying these units and a lot of them, you know, 44% being underwater. I had lunch with a unnamed large condo developer several years ago. And we asked about that because virtually every investment, you know, the Aaron and I look at on uh, the non-residential side, cash flow is expected. You know, there's there's no real scenario where you're going to put money, I mean, outside of land or something like that, but a stabilized asset, you're always going to want to see cash flow. And he said that, you know, the average investor is not sophisticated. They've saved up enough for a down payment. They want to buy it at the age of 35 or 40, sit on it for 20 years, and that's part of their retirement plan. And they don't even expect not that they don't want the cash flow, but it's not part of their plan, not part of their expectation. So even though they do have a condo that is uh, not cash flowing, they're satisfied with that investment and it's performing as they plan, which is a strange mentality when you look at you know other investments out there in the commercial world. Yeah, it looks okay when you look backwards, right? You buy a pre-construction unit, you wait five years for it to be built. The value of the unit appreciates during the development timeline. The rents have appreciated to a point where in most cases they can cash flow. And because of the power of leverage, you're putting down stage deposits over the course of development. You have about 15 to 20% in by the time that the unit's completed. The value of the unit is appreciated by so much that on average, you're looking at 150% return on investment, right? It looks great on paper. But when you go to close on the unit, obviously, you have to have even stronger faith in the growth in the market going forward. And I think that's really what's driving this, right? The investors have seen huge gains if they keep the unit, obviously they're in some cases cash flow negative, but the values have shown steady appreciation year over year. The average condo downtown has grown in price on average by about 7% year over year. So even factoring in the 20% growth that we saw last year and some periods where it was basically flat, you're looking at an investment that has shown to perform relatively well uh, over the last 10 years. So if you're having to allocate some funds to to keep it cash flow neutral by putting more of a down payment into the investment. I think some investors are okay with that as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess the critical part, as you said, is the fact that you can highly leverage that investment. So that 7%, of course, is an unlevered return. It's a different scenario once you lever it up and the qualifications for that are much easier than, you know, if you were to Say if you're a bunch of school teachers and you pool your assets and you go buy an industrial building, that's going to be a complicated asset to to manage. It's going to be complicated to understand. Condos, I mean, most people have lived in them. They understand them. What's curious, and we've recently recorded two episodes with uh, condo developers that are now building purpose-built rentals. And one is uh, Wendy Waters from GWL Realty Advisors and uh, Jonathan Gitlin from Rio Can Living. Now, we haven't released those episodes, and I'm not sure if the, our listeners will have a chance to listen to them in the future or have already listened to them. But regardless, both of them were talking about the benefits and why they're approaching purpose-built rentals. And, and part of that is because a lot of the research they've done and the surveys they've, they've conducted, they've discovered that the end user, the renter, would much prefer to live in a purpose-built rental because of the professional management, because of the amenities, rather than rent from an individual condo unit where 
you know, condo owner where they may not live in the city. You know, if you've got something that's broken, they're not around to, there's no super on site to come and to rectify it. You know, they, they haven't, they're not trying to foster a community within that building. And often the buildings are of poor quality, right? Because the condo developer is really trying to build the thing as cheap as possible just to get in and get out versus the purpose-built rental units are, are being built for long-term ownership because often these developers are owning it for a long time. And so they're kind of, I think, putting their money and the chips into the, the there's going to be this transition away from the end user wanting a condo unit or not willing to pay as much for a condo unit versus a purpose-built rental. Have you, as your research, you know, shown any of that or can you comment on the potential that we're going to start seeing a, a larger switch towards purpose-built rental away from, from condo development? Yeah, I've, I've certainly noticed that as well. And I think part of it is the changing demographics of renters as well, right? It's not just younger individuals that are renting. A younger renter may not care as much about renting a condo unit or a purpose-built rental because they don't plan on staying in the unit for very long. They're very mobile. But what we've noticed is that the demographics of renters are starting to change. They're beginning to age. You're seeing a greater quantity of more mature renters, so couples, even some families, and in particular, a large downsizing market as well that's looking to liquidate their primary residence. And instead of buying again, say a condo, the rental proposition is very attractive to them. So we've noticed that certain rental buildings that have targeted downsizers and couples that have a greater quantity of, say, two-bedroom units in the building than, than one-bedrooms have done very well. They've leased up very quickly. And the rent per square foot that these buildings are able to achieve has shown to have a premium over the condo next door that has a greater quantity of smaller units and higher turnover and obviously not lacking the, uh, the professional management aspect. Within you know, that more mature renter base, having security of tenure is extremely important. Mm-hmm. So not you know, having the fear that the owner of the unit is going to sell it or claim personal use and kick you out knowing that you can stay in the unit for as long as you want. You can establish the, your roots. And, the, as long as the building exists, you can yeah. stay there, basically. Yeah. So these buildings have done exceptionally well. There's much more care and planning done to the amenities in the building to create more of a community so people want Absolutely. to stay. The units are, are much better laid out, as you mentioned. The finishes are more durable. The quality of construction is, tends to be higher. And uh, certainly the returns are there. If you look at some of the newer rental buildings that have leased up, even just in the early part of 2018, it's shocking to see how high of a rent level they're able to achieve. They're not affordable units in most cases, but um, it's been very, I think, uh, surprising from both my side and the development side of of seeing how high and how much demand there is for for that type of rental. We've seen that on the lending side as well. I mean, I remember looking at Proformas four years ago for apartment construction, and you say, oh, these numbers are crazy, they'll never get them. And of course, you fast forward, and they've exceeded it by 20%. It's uh, been a shock to us, um, but of course, it makes rental performance work a lot better if you can plug in those higher rents. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Sean, uh, recently in the news, we've seen a couple of headlines about uh, canceled condos. You know, how, how does that factor into your research and you know, what are you seeing there? So since the beginning of uh, 2017, we've recorded uh, about 10 project cancellations so over the last 15 months or so, we're looking at close to 4,000 units that have announced uh, cancellations. So these would be high-rise condo apartment projects. That would be more than usual. In a typical year, we'd maybe see about five project cancellations, so it's, it's twice as high as it normally is. But as a percentage of the overall units that are in development, it's still quite small, right? If you look at those 4,000 units, it's really less than 4% of overall development. 
I think, you know, there's various reasons why a project decides to cancel. But I think at the root of it is the fact that, you know, if you step away and, and kind of look at what's happening in the city right now, we're building a record level of units right now, right? So that stat doesn't get played up that much. There's 61,000 units that are under construction. We've that, never built... That's just the condo market. And then there's another sort of 6,000 in the purpose-built market Exactly. As well, right? If you combine both sectors, we're, we have 70,000 apartment units under construction in the GTA right now. There's another 40,000 units that are pre-sold pretty much sold out that are awaiting construction and pre-construction. So that's right 100,000 units. There's 100,000 units. And you can imagine that there's only so much resource that can go around to build all of these units. And there's all of these projects right now that are vying for construction contracts. And the trades are incredibly stretched right now with projects that are underway. And they're having to deal with uh, rising construction costs and obviously higher development charges as well, which are on the way. And it's leading to a much longer development timeline than it has in the past. So a project that comes into the market and pre-sales may wait longer than it has in the past to get its construction permits and get underway. And what we found is that there's a number of projects that launched prior to the run-up in prices, right? The increase in price was very sudden within the new condo market. It was building for a little while in the single-family home market. But within the condo market, things were pretty stable for a good number of years. And then all of a sudden, prices shot up 30%. So you have this quantity of units that are sort of stuck in pre-construction that pre-sold before that big run-up in prices that by the time that they were ready to begin construction, were faced with construction costs that were significantly higher than they had budgeted for, mm -hmm. rising development charges. And they looked at these numbers in relation to what they pre-sold for, and, and the projects were, were simply not feasible anymore. So... There's still a number of units, I, th I would say, that are still at risk. It's a theme, I think, for 2018 that we'll, we'll continue to hear about, but we'll work through it. And still sort of important to, to relay the message that it's still a, a fraction sliver, of, the, of the... A tiny sliver of the market. But the media loves the narrative of the sky is falling when it comes to real estate because... Uh, well, in the long lines of it, it bleeds, it leads. Well, threaten your your real estate and your and your residence. Yeah, well, it's like the weather. It's like one of the two things that everybody has some relation to, right? You, you touched on a, on something that I find interesting is this, is this increase in cost, and it is about thirty percent within the GTA. And and you know some of the conversations we've had at First National with our developer clients is how how important their relationships with their trades are and how they they go above and beyond and bend over backwards to keep their trades happy because you need those those individuals there to help you build your development. If you don't make a payment on the day that they're supposed to and you start frustrating your trades and they decide, you know what, I'm not going to go to your next development. I'm going to go somewhere else. That can put you in a really challenging situation to continue the development. I think that probably is occurring with some of these situations. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the case. And um, it's not surprising to hear that a lot of the development companies are looking to internalize construction at this point as well. So they have sure. it within. You know, th these are just sort of issues that compound when you look at how high land costs are as well, right? Yeah. We're, we're tracking the land market now. And we're seeing a number of sites right in the downtown area or close to the downtown area uh, routinely trading for above $200 a foot. Now, the prices have risen to a, to a point that helped justify that land the, cost. I mean, the, but the condo, the end condo values. The end condo, yeah. But uh, again, things are starting to moderate, right? We're not seeing that type of inflation carry forward. So I think developers that are, that are looking at, at buying land now have to consider a lot of different things. But certainly the market is in transition period right now. But I think the, the most important point and some of the data metrics that have come out so far in 2018 have supported the fact that the market has remained really healthy, really stable so far. And uh, obviously the rental market is just on fire still. Sure. I was going to say with rising land costs and rising DCs, 
developers have taken a bit of a hit in terms of return on their projects over the last, I, I mean, I'll call it three or four years. Um, I'm going to ballpark some numbers. You probably know better than I do. But, you know, if they used to be able to get, uh, you know, something over 20%, now they're kind of in the low teens in terms of their yield on development. Well, and that's where I was going to. I mean, if you, and it's, this is complicated, but but let's just put it on the, so the demand is still there, it sounds like. It still sounds like there is a lot of demand for these units, whether it's purpose-built or the condo side. Uh, but you've got rising development charges. You've got 30% increase in the cost, the development costs. Uh, you've got rising land prices. You've got um, new regulatory headwinds that are that are challenging the the ability to make a profit. So what happens? Like what you know, put your crystal ball. Like what kind of trends are we looking at? Because it sounds like there's a lot of forces pushing the supply downwards, even though we've still got this high demand. Yeah, I think that's a trend that's going to persist. I think within the market, there just simply isn't enough supply that's coming in 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 one form or another to satisfy the level of demand that we're seeing right now particularly in the high-rise market, but more acutely, I would say, in the rental market. When we look at the numbers that are coming out for, let's say, renter household formation for the GTA, they're numbers that we haven't seen in decades, and they're outstripping the growth and ownership demand at this point. So if we're not introducing enough supply that is catering to condo investors or purpose-built rental development, the supply situation is going to continue to remain squeezed. And of course, then put upward pressure on rents, which is, you know, as you indicated, almost directly tied to income, which is not rising. Right. right. And then you get this adverse situation like you're seeing in Vancouver where people start to leave the city, right? right? They can no longer afford to live in the city. They begin to move. Talent begins to reallocate in different areas of the country. So it's a situation. It's a situation that needs a lot of attention. I think the government's looking at it more closely, obviously. But this is not a demand and supply imbalance that's going to correct itself anytime soon, right? This is a slow-moving machine, and certainly supply is going to ramp up with market forces and government incentives. But you're looking at rental demand right now that is realistically running from anywhere from 20,000 to 30,000 units a year, right? Hmm. You're going to get you know, maybe ten to 15,000 units being built out of condo investor supply, and then you have that massive gap of ten to 15,000 units that you're not building right now. 8,000 purpose-built rental units are under construction right now. We may deliver at a pace of, let's say, two or 3,000 units a year. We need to basically... Yeah, you just said 30,000 per year demand. Yeah. Right? Like so you're at one-tenth the amount that's necessary just to keep us with a stable rental levels. Yeah. I mean, and that number may even be conservative by some yeah. measures, right? There's individuals that are that are doubling up you see yeah, well, a lot more Wendy, people Wendy Waters from GWO Realty Advisors was on here and she said that it's 100,000 units that we're short today yeah of purpose built rentals or or condo i guess it, it, to some degree yeah cuz you have to figure that there's this basic hole that we've developed where there's demand that hasn't materialized that probably should have right so younger folks living with their parents or you know people having to have a roommate and cohabitate. It's, yeah, it's funny. You say, we have colleagues that are 27, 28, 29 and still struggling to find a way to move out of their parents' house. Yeah. Just, or, or happily ensconced there. But yes. I, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, it's not that they're not generating a good income for themselves. It's just not good enough to be able to afford the either a purchase of a condo or even really to justify paying, you know, four bucks a square foot or three and a half bucks a square foot in rent. They're not, they're not house poor, but they'll be rental poor. It's yeah. the same concept and they don't want to live like that, which you know makes perfect sense. Things have changed very quickly in Toronto. I, I remember when I came out of school, the income levels that, I'm, that are within the entry level part of the market now really haven't changed that much over the last you know 10 to 15 years. Yeah, they're no, pretty absolutely. much the same, but the rents have 
have more well, than doubled. One of your, uh, the interesting numbers I, I, in one of your most recent reports was in January 2016, you needed to make an average of $64,000 to, mm-hmm. to be able to purchase an average condo in the GTA. Two years later, it's $100,000. So it's gone up you know, 40% just in two years, the, the level of income needed to buy the average condo. And that's a combination of, of a few different things. It's obviously prices having risen quite substantially, but you also have the new mortgage insurance rules and, right. and, and rules for uninsured mortgages as well, where you have more, to more headwinds if you're if you're keeping score, right? That's just, there's a ton of pressure pushing supply down. So it's interesting as affordability gets squeezed, you start to see the market adjust in different ways, right? So historically, when affordability became stretched, you started to see buyers, you know, shift into relatively lower cost markets in the GTA, right? They they compensated by moving into Markets with single-family home prices that were relatively low, like the Durham region or Mississauga or Brampton, for instance. And that still happens to some degree, I would say. But it's happening more so internally within the city of Toronto, where buyers are beginning to shift increasingly within the high-rise market. And even within the high-rise market, where the average price of a condo, as I mentioned earlier, is $600,000 in Toronto, you're starting to see more buyers shift into the smaller units as well. So... One of the uh, interesting findings that came from our research in the first part of 2018 is that the fastest appreciating units are, in fact, the studio units. And ironically, there was this fear that not only were we building too many condos over the last decade, but we were building too many small condos. But what we've come to learn is that we obviously haven't been building enough of them. And uh, most of these units are, in fact, coming through the rental market. And there's very little that actually turns over in the resale supply. So the market's way of dealing with what's happened in terms of affordability has really been a gravitation towards these small units. And developers, interestingly, have have really started to shift away from those units in the last several years. So recognizing that there's been this growing market for move-up buying within the condo market, we've started to see that the unit mix within projects that are in development shift more towards two bedrooms. Mm. And the allocation of, of small one bedrooms and studios has really shrunk. It started to pick up again in the most recent quarter, but it just goes to show you that you know the market is very dynamic and there's demand really across the board from all product types. But given that development's a bit of a slow-moving behemoth, the response to address those concerns is on a four- and five-year time horizon. Whereas, of course, you need to really address them today. Which is an interesting concept, because how complicated is that? That when you're in the planning stages today, let's say you've, ac- you've acquired some land and you're deciding what to build, you're looking at the market today saying, okay, well, this is what I should build if I could build it in five months, but it's going to take me four years. So how do you predict what the market's going to look like in four years from now? Yeah, I think you have to take a longer-term view. And I think certainly the affordability situation isn't going to get much better. Okay, you'd have to see a notable correction in prices at this point for anything to, to improve in, on the affordability front. And the demand and supply fundamentals as we look at them today and project them into the future are much too strong for that to happen, right? There's always the chance of an outside event that you can't predict, but certainly with the growth in population and the local economy up against really tight levels of supply, it seems to, it seems to suggest that prices really have one direction at this point. So as that continues to happen, you have to sort of think of the different iterations that will occur, right? There's going to be more development happening in relatively less expensive markets as a result, which is why you're starting to see more opportunities in markets like Hamilton and Kitchener-Waterloo and even, you know, markets that surround the GTA, such as Barrie and the Niagara region have seen a lot more interest recently. But as well within Toronto, you know, buyers and renters having to sort of sacrifice on space in order to sort of save on costs. And, and it's done uh, very well, I think, for both investors and 
and rental operators that are seeing that studio units, even in markets like Scarborough, get like $4 a square foot. It's, it's incredible. Is there a chance that employers recognize this and start to increase the, the income that they're, they're willing to offer to their employees? I know... You know well, so, Aaron, you do hiring. You answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer is probably yes, right? If you want to retain the talent, you talked about sort of a, the exodus of talent because of the expensive, uh, the inaffordable markets. And it, I think San Francisco is an example where they just had to increase their level of incomes because the cost to live there was so high. Uh, and the employers realized that if I want to keep my level of talent or hire strong talent, I just have to pay more so that they can still live in the city. Yeah. And I think that's part of the case, but there's certainly broader macroeconomic forces at play that influence wage growth. But if you look at the unemployment rate in Toronto, it's at like a 40-year low. I think it's below 6% for the first time that they've ever recorded it. So you would expect that in a market that has such a tight labor supply like Toronto, incomes would be growing much quicker than they have, which is great, right? Because it's going to start to compensate for some of that growth in rent that we've seen. But yeah, no, if, you, if you're going to establish a headquarters or, or a new operation in downtown Toronto, you're going to have to factor in that the cost of living has increased remarkably just in a very short period of time. Well, as part of the discussion around headquarters specifically and Amazon HQ2, there's an interesting chart on Twitter. I wish I had it in front of me, but I don't. Uh, but it examined the wages that people earn an average on the likely contenders to win that bid. Toronto is in that mix. Uh, versus the purchasing power within those cities and what that income actually means. So I think Toronto is being criticized as being further down the scale, but once you adjust for what you can actually purchase, um, you know, Toronto is not as expensive as some of the other cities in contention, even though we complain about affordability all the time, and, you know, and rightfully so. So it was, it was kind of interesting to see that it's you know, not necessarily just the dollar figure, but the quality of life it can bring you and where you fall on that scale. And Toronto is uh, middle of the pack, I guess, once you kind of shake it out. Amongst other high-profile cities, I mean, obviously, if you're talking about smaller markets, Toronto's going to skew to the right side of that scale again. Yeah. So, Sean, uh, Urban Nation recently released a report, and that's where a lot of our figures are coming from today. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. What was the most surprising element that you discovered through that process? So uh, the numbers themselves were shocking, right? Um, 35,000 new condo sales in a given year blew the previous record out of the water. But when we started to break down the numbers, it was quite surprising to see how those volumes came to be. A lot of the activity was in very large-scale developments, right? So it was concentrated within multi-phase, very tall tower projects that were opening not only within the city of Toronto, but in markets that haven't seen that type of development, really, right? So you saw the Vaughan Metropolitan City Center launch a lot of units, Mississauga City Center. And the fact that development became much more concentrated within these big developments was, was quite interesting, but also the fact that it started to spread itself out right across the 905 region. What was also sort of concerning from these numbers was that as we started to see more and more units come into these high-rise developments, we actually saw a decline in more mid-rise projects being brought into the marketplace. So projects that had less than 100 units, even projects with less than 200 units, actually saw a decline in new supply last year. So it's, it's that sort of what they term missing middle product hmm. that is one of the perceived solutions to the housing affordability challenge here. It's introducing supply that bridges the gap between a one-bedroom condo apartment, which could be $500,000, in a single family home, which is in excess of a million dollars in most markets in the GTA. 
So having a more boutique project that has a greater allocation of, say, two-bedroom units that can be priced under a million dollars has actually declined in supply, right? So you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're really sort of fragmenting your market at this point where you're, you're seeing a large quantity of investor-heavy projects come in with smaller units and a decline in, in the type of supply that many would argue the market needs right now. Making the jump from a $500,000 condo to a $1.3 million home in High Park would be, that'd be difficult. You'd be one heck of a saver to try and pull that off. Any sense of what's driving that? I mean, potentially it's just that these projects were planned five years ago and it just, they, they kind of missed the mark on what the demand would be at this point in time when they're coming online. Anything else you think that's contributing to this misalignment? Well, part of it is obviously um, the fact that they have to absorb a large quantity of units when you're in a large development such as that. And, you know, you're catering to who's going to purchase most of those units, which would be investors, and they're mostly looking towards smaller suites. But within, you know, the more sort of mid-rise type product, I think it really just comes down to the ability for a developer to confidently purchase a site that is more mid-rise and have it push through the development approvals process, get the residents on board, get council approval, and ultimately be able to build at a cost that makes economic sense. The, the, the economics for a mid-rise are particularly fragile. And certainly the prices have risen to a point which help support the case, but there's a lot of other barriers that I think complicate the matters. And so developers have been, I would say, hesitant to some degree to go towards the mid-rise route. But Interestingly, when you look at some of the land deals that have happened over the course of 2017, it suggests that there's more interest developing. So mm-hmm. a lot of sites bought along, obviously, the Eglinton LRT yeah, expansion, but you know other routes such as DuPont and St. Clair and College Street is, are starting to see more development applications come in as well. And what the developers, I think, are, are going to come to realize is that these projects will be able to achieve a certain premium in the marketplace because they are in such low supply. And they have this massive amount of pent-up demand where you have individuals that were living in small condos for years and years, and they can't afford to move up into a single-family home. So they're looking for a two-bedroom unit that's in a, let's say, family or friendlier area. Mm -hmm. And there just isn't the supply. So there's a lot of upward pressure on prices in that segment of the market, unfortunately, and just not enough development occurring at this point. Um, You mentioned the, the increase in investor purchasing. And I've heard the argument made that it adds more risk to the market because if there was a sudden downturn, investors can walk away from their units and also they'll, of course, stop buying them. So if you're talking about you know north of 80% of the market going to investors and they all of a sudden just disappear overnight because the metrics don't make sense anymore, it would be you know virtually the entire buying pool collapsing. I mean, obviously that can't really be borne out through research, but do you see that risk in the market or that there's an increased element of accelerating downward market because of the high investor purchasers? Well, I, I think if you look at the profile of investors that purchase condos in Toronto, most of them view the market from a more long-term angle. So they're, they're not buying with the intention of flipping and they're okay with accepting some level of a risk, obviously, with what happens with prices. The other thing is that with the deposit structure that's in place, most are investing $100,000 within a fairly short period of time. That's a lot of money to have to walk away from. And that would require a fairly significant correction in prices. I don't see that happening in 
coming from the market itself, like in terms of us building too much condo supply, it would have to come from some sort of an outside force. So if that's the case, and investors did start to sell, certainly it would add some vulnerability to the market that would already be experiencing some level of shock. But the fact that we deliver a sort of staged number of units in a given year is one of the reasons why the market itself isn't really that big at risk. So we can have 100,000 units in development, but we're only really delivering maybe 20,000 units on a given year. If half of those are owned by investors and a portion of them look to sell, it'll add some extra quantity of supply into the marketplace and will have some impact on price. But it's not a factor in and of itself that would cause the market to crash, I would say. Okay, I'll sleep easier. (laughs) (laughs) You're going out to buy a condo today, aren't (laughs) you? No, one other thing that came to mind, you'd mentioned density and and the mid-rise market being more fragile. Any comment about what's occurring with the demise of the OMB and the new process? And maybe maybe it's been too early to to see any of that in your in your research. But do you have any comments about what kind of impact that might have on our development community? Yeah, I think it's it's probably too early to say at this point. I hope that it adds more clarity to the planning process and to the development process as well. I hope that it leads to shorter development timelines and approval processes. I don't know that that's going to be the case, but mm-hmm. we'll we'll find out. Because potentially, I mean, the OMB was seen by many as being you know more favorable towards developers. So I mean, again, keeping score at home, there's another headwind potentially towards this this industry where you know, in my mind, now that you're really relying on the city council and you don't have that sort of the same kind of appeal process, you're more subjected to you know, nimbyism and, and counselors that are really, you know, they may not necessarily disagree with the need for that development, but if they've got enough uh, noisy constituents saying, I don't want that but development, that you're, you're now you've got just additional headwinds to the developers in our, or that community. Yeah, which ultimately comes down to impacting supply. Right, right? again, it's, yeah. it's another headwind for supply. And it's going to probably increase prices for land as well. You know, if there's a zone property, obviously that will have a much more favorable price in the marketplace. But um, certainly for those that uh, that are looking to, to bring land into the marketplace, there's a greater risk there, right? Uh, you may not want to answer this question, but let's say you're back in a year from now. Again, what is the average rent per square foot? And what is the average uh, unit price per square foot? Right now, I think the what, 700? Is that, is that 700 per square foot is kind of the average price? And I think rents are about three bucks. Like, where, where does it go? Maybe it's not one year, maybe it's two or three years. Like, do you see a ceiling? So I'm, I'm very bullish still on the rental market. I think uh, there's more runway room left for rents to grow. And in fact, even within the growth of the condo rental market that we've seen, if you look at it an apples to apples comparison, it's still cheaper to rent a unit than it is mm-hmm. to buy a unit. And with interest rates edging up, right? Uh, Which is reverse. At, that's 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 new, is it not? I think I saw one of your reports that that's a new phenomenon that it's actually cheaper to rent than to own. It is, and with the new regulations, obviously for home buying, and you look at bond yields, they're at their highest that they've been in, in a long time. It would suggest that interest rates and affordability are going to continue to. Uh, to have an impact on the ownership market. So rents, I think still, if I looked at where they would be uh, a year from now, I would be very comfortable saying they'll be five to 6% higher, right? So yeah, the average right now for the GTA is three bucks a foot. I think it's it's going to be even higher in a year to two years it's from funny, now. funny, you know, two years ago we were having this conversation, I think the average was two and a quarter and mm-hmm. you know, some of the projections and the performance was I needed three bucks to make my, my purpose-built rental make sense and they've achieved that. And 
I wonder if four bucks is not unreasonable in, in a couple of years or five bucks per square foot. I mean, do you see it getting to that level? I do. I, there's a, there's a number of new buildings that are finishing now that are getting four dollars already. Yeah, well, but that's in sort of a Yorkville neighborhood. Not right? even. No, really? I mean yeah. anything within downtown is getting pretty much three fifty a foot, three seventy five a foot. And there are some units that are getting close to five dollars a square foot. It's a small market at this sure. point, but eventually we'll we'll start to see a greater. But level could be the new norm there. eventually. Yeah, I think we're we're heading in that direction. Um, I, I, I wouldn't suggest that we're going to continue to see ten percent growth in rents every year. I think that's an unrealistic expectation, particularly in light of the fact that we're going to see more supply coming into the market. It's not going to be enough to satisfy demand, but it's going to be at a higher quantity than it has been in the previous five year period, say. We've been way underbuilding in terms of supply. We're going to still be way underbuilding, but not by the same extent well, as we did. We just listed a whole bunch of reasons why that that may be compressed even further. Yeah. yeah. On, on the pricing side, I'm still confident, but less so than, than on the rents. It's just, you know, we, we've seen such a strong run up and affordability becomes so squeezed and the government policies coming in, making it that much more challenging. It seems to me that we'll, we'll still see some growth. And if you look at metrics like the sales to listings ratio, it still suggests that there's more upward pressure on prices that are going to occur in the near term, but less so than, than say, the, the last couple of years. So if I were to peg a growth forecast for 2018 for condo prices from now until uh, a year from now, I'd say you're, you're looking at maybe about 4% from now. We'll have you back on next year and do a little math and see. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll replay this and see how right you are. <laughs> or wrong, yeah, yeah. That's the problem with recorded predictions. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> In the back of my mind, we, I've had Vancouver, you know, kind of rumbling around because it's it is it maybe not a good comparison because they've got some different supply constraints, uh, land supply constraints. But you know, you hear some numbers coming out of that marketplace that just make you shake your head. Right, I, I, someone was telling me twenty five. $2,500 per square foot for some townhomes and, you know, just some, some numbers that just are astronomical. I, I suspect we'll never get there just because there are different forces, but you never know, I guess. No, look, you get to a point where it starts to make less sense and the market begins to adjust. And I think we're already at that point in Toronto. I've noticed that some projects that are trying to get thirteen dollars or $1,400 a square foot, they're not seeing the level of absorption that they probably hoped that they would. And that suggests to me that there's a bit of a plateauing that's happening in the market, which is much needed after a 30% run-up, that's for <laughs> sure. And then within the rental market as well, I think you're, you're going to start to see more projects reach occupancy this year. And a lot of these units are investor purchased. There's going to be quite a bit of quantity coming in. So it'll make the market somewhat less competitive. But nonetheless, I still think there's enough room there for rents to grow. You, uh, you mentioned lease to listings ratio. Can you just explain what that is? Yeah, so it's one of the metrics we look at to gauge market balance. So on the on the for sale side, it's the sales to listings ratio. If you're within, you know, like a like a forty to fifty to sixty percent range, you're typically balanced. And then if you're above sixty percent, you're usually in a seller's market, which is what the condo market is still in. On the rental side, it's tough because the market has always stayed in a very high leases to listings ratio range, close to about eighty percent. So within a given quarter. 80% of the units that will be listed for rent will be leased out within that same period of time. Pretty much everything gets leased in time, but mm -hmm. those will get leased up within, within a fairly short period of time. So the other metrics that we tend to take a look at that would suggest further downward pressure on vacancy would be things like the average days on market, the ratio of units that are being leased for above asking price. And those numbers still suggest that the market is actually tightening, right? Mm -hmm. So 
it wasn't surprising to me at all when CMHC re- released their 2017 vacancy rate stats and it showed that the vacancy rate for condos fell below 1%. It was 07 I wouldn't be surprised to see that drop even further. You look at vacancy rates in Vancouver, they're like 02 yeah. right? Yeah. Basically zero. I think we're probably heading we're close heading to there. Uh, Sean, we always like to end our guest segment, or at least this year, we like to end our guest segment by asking, uh, if you were to invest all of your money into one asset class in what city, what would it be and why? I mean, obviously you have a very high level of detailed focus on the GTA. I want so you to say something like industrial and Edmonton or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm, I'm obviously very confident in the GTA markets and, 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 and their surrounding areas with respect to rental in particular. But I think I'd probably venture outside of the GTA and, and look closer at a market like Ottawa. As, as somebody with an economics background, I tend to favor markets that show stability. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Ottawa market is recovering very nicely right now from what was deemed to be, I, I guess, a bit of an oversupply of, of condo development. Things have stabilized very nicely there. And the local economy is, is incredibly secure, right? Very much driven by the public sector. We need government. Yeah, and and the government has been has been hiring again. And if you look at the affordability of the Ottawa market in relation to Toronto and, and other big cities across Canada, it looks extremely favorable. And um, we've been doing some work in these markets, and the valuations on new rentals within you know central locations in a market like Ottawa are very strong, right? And I don't know what the land prices are, but I have to imagine that they're substantially less than they are in Toronto. Have to be. Have to be. And um, yeah, just from sort of a stability perspective and, and, and a long-term growth projection perspective, I, I like a market like Ottawa. Good answer. And unexpected. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to thank uh, our listeners for listening. I want to thank First National for sponsoring us. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with somebody who's interested in the topic. We talked about a lot today. It's a lot of great info. I'm sure it could benefit somebody you know, so just please send it along. And most importantly, I want to thank uh, Sean for coming on for his second appearance and you know, look forward to your third. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.